Hello, and welcome to Carefully Taught, teaching musical theater with Maddie and Kika. A podcast to discuss musical theater pedagogy and to create a community of sharing amongst musical theater educators. Feel free to email us at carefullytaughtpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at carefullytaughtpodcast. Today's guest is Marty Austin Lamar. I first met, in fact, we both first met Marty when Marty served as uh, one of the founding members of the Representation, Equity, and Inclusion Committee of Musical Theater Educators Alliance. Uh, his his uh, professional acting credits, the list of professional credits he has is super long. He formerly was the musical theater, a musical theater instructor at Howard University, which is uh, the only uh, historically black university that has a BFA in musical theater. And he is the new co-coordinator of musical theater at uh, Fullerton State, Cal State Fullerton. So uh, you might not know this, but that means that Marty and I are uh, union brothers because he is in the CFA and we just got a raise, y'all. So that's good because uh, uh, Chico State and Fullerton State, uh, we're in this thing together. But I am so excited. Every time I get to talk with Marty, every time I, I see Marty present at a conference or at, at an event, I take stuff away. I know our listeners will too. Uh, but Marty, welcome to Carefully Taught, Teaching Musical Theater with Maddie and Kiko. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be here. We are so lucky and happy to have you. So, you know, we're just, you know, we want to check in. We want to, I, the first thing I want to ask you is, how, how's Fullerton? How's Fullerton? That's a big move from Washington, D.C. to Southern California. Yeah, that's a loaded question. So this is, this is what I, I, I uh, how I describe my, my tenure at Fullerton. Um, it is exactly what it is supposed to be at this season of my life and in my career. Um, in higher education, um, you know, I made a decision to um, make some choices that put me first, and this was one of those. Um, and after interviewing with a few schools, it seemed that California, for a number of reasons, not just um, the opportunity to Fullerton, but that it made sense at this season in my life. And so um, I'm learning a lot. There's a lot of work to do, but I'm privileged to work with uh, my my good friend, Josh Grissetti, um, and uh, he is a workhorse. And so um, it's very interesting to, to, to work with him and kind of see um, see myself in many ways and how he's approaching um, this work. Um, and so, you know, I often, I, I often have to remind myself um, that this is California, that there is, a, you know, I am supposed to, I don't know, go to a beach or figure out how to have some free time here and there. And so um, that's been a big part um, of the journey. Um, what I know to be true about Fullerton is that they're very aware we're very aware of the work that has to be done, um, specifically in this time of uh, diversity and inclusion. And so uh, the work is being done. And um, I'm, I'm really blessed to be a part of, um, of that team um, at that Cal State Fullerton. So it is going well, and I'm learning more each day. A lot of work. But <laughs> but other than that, um, I, 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 am, I am enjoying it. I am enjoying it. That is, that is so great to hear. Um, when you are saying there's a lot of work, do you are, are there some baby steps that are being taken right now, or is are we just in conversation um, with the shifts? One big one big shift is um, 
kind of moving away from the cut program um, set up. So that that is gone and we'll have um, in in the fall of 22, we'll have our first cohort that will be in the program specifically for four full years. And so that is really exciting. And, um, you know, on the other, as it concerns diversity, equity, inclusion, and inclusion, um, one, Cal State Fullerton is an HSI, an Hispanic serving institution, but that does not necessarily mean that all other aspects to include your upper administration, to include your faculty, that the faculty reflects that diversity. And so that is a big conversation that is happening. And then on the other side is conversations like, listen, we, we all have to, kind of allow our ego to kind of go away because there are things that need to be done and they do require that you free yourself of any <coughs> assumptions or any assumed consequence. So perfect example, there are a few African-American students um, between our de departments, so between dance and the acting BFA, the um, technical theater BFA um, and musical theater BFA. Um, and, um, you know, I, what I, I had to say to my colleagues, you know, there was an incident, a particular student was, you know, having some challenges. And what I said to them was, you know, I, I really need you all to feel free to come and have that conversation with me. Um, there, it is one of the reasons why it's so important that I'm here is that they're able to see themselves in ways they've not been able to, which means that there might be ways to, um, uh, you know, remedy whatever some of these issues and problems are. There's a level of comfort when you're speaking to someone that is directly from your ancestral community. Um, and, you know, as a result, it really began to open more conversation between myself and my colleagues. Because you can imagine, you know, it could feel, you know, well, he's the only African-American on the faculty. Let's go talk to him about the other African-American students, right? But indeed, that's what needs to happen. <laughs> that's what needs to happen. And that's how we begin to build bridges and, and build resources. And so it's been a lot of that, a lot of sharing of resources with faculty. And then a lot of it also is just being honest that, you know, constant full as you all know, is an impacted school. So there are a set of standards and requirements that are kind of built in. Um, and if students are not able to meet those minimum requirements, some at times some are really, really high because of the competitive nature um, of the admissions process. Um, if students don't meet those, they don't get in. That means diversity is immediately affected. Right, that you know, students coming in with a 4.0 and and you know a certain level on a standardized test, and that becomes the mean to get into the university. If you don't have that level of achievement, then you, you're you know essentially your application is discarded. And so it's those kinds of conversations that then help us kind of set a strategy to move um, towards improving the statistics as it concerns. Um, African-Americans on the campus specifically, but diversity and, and representation from the global majority um, for certain. So, Well, I got to say, Marty, um, I am really excited for you and that program. I, you know, when I took this position at Chico State, there were two musical theater programs in the entire CSU, two places you could get a degree. And Fullerton was really the one that had the long legacy uh, that had a history to it. And it had also, I, from my perspective, not really evolved 
with the with the times. And I, I think the cut program is a perfect example of that. Like when I went to school in 1997 or whenever it was that I got my school in the Midwest, I went to school in Cincinnati. We had a cut program. It no longer exists. Most programs have gotten rid of that. Fullerton was like one of the only dinosaurs that were still sort of hanging on to that. It's <laughs> such a, a perfect example of the kind of great work, the great work that you can do. And I'm excited because I know you and I, I know your I, I feel like I understand your vision. I'm excited to be in the same, you know, in the CSU system with you and potentially partner with you and, and be your uh, your collaborator in in creating a musical theater uh, world on the West Coast <laughs> because we deserve that. Um, so I just think I think the I think the possibilities are endless and I'm just really excited to see what you have. Thank you. That means that means a lot. It means a lot, and um, and and I agree. I guess that's one of the other things that there was something challenging. It was that in this like California, why are there no? Why don't we have substantial musical theater programs specifically here? I mean, we're less than thirty minutes of what we, well, the traffic is good from Los Angeles, and. Um, you know, with the evolution or the rebirth of the movie musical and all, all of the things that happen now in entertainment, um, particularly now that the majority of, 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 uh, of the industry, at least as it concerns the process of casting and audition is virtual, right? There should really be no limits in a space in a state like California. Um, and so it's been very interesting to, to hear stories, to also, um, talk with alum of the program and see what they're doing and, you know, and, and their reflections of their time there. Um, and that's not to take anything away from the faculty that, you know, that has served over the last decades, but it, it is to say that change was necessary. At that time, Del Merrill, who was our dean, he saw the necessity of the change and, and brought in a full new cohort of about six of us, five of us, six of us, um, in different areas within the department. Um, and, and, you know, so it's interesting to come together and have our collaborative conversations. And often many of them are like, can you believe that this still happened? <laughs> can you believe this? You know, but at the end of the day, that's what if, if, if changes, if change does not happen consistently, if it is, if it does not continue to be um, under review, then you do, you can kind of get stuck in some of these uh, antiquated ways of doing things. So, yeah, glad to be here. So this is uh, uh, maybe a deviation of the topic, but I'm I am wondering what you enjoy bringing to your teaching. Like I'm wondering um, what from your life, like I identify primarily as a director, choreographer. I just so happen to have skills in in other things, administration and and teaching and I'm just curious like what's something what are things that you have brought with you on this journey uh to California yeah I think um I mean the biggest and, and maybe most obvious is my cultural identity um and my experience in the industry is vastly different from anybody else's particularly um white males that are in my you know same um, we'll just say generation within the industry, right? And so it's um, it's been a joy to share and to share in a way that empowers students to then share their experiences. Um, and so um, 
I, and I was very, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I try to be as, as honest and available to the, the process as it is. And so a part of this process was me um, kind of shifting my, my brain just a little bit because, you know, I was at Howard for five years leading there and um, diversity has a completely different definition <laughs> than it does at, you know, at a Cal State Fullerton. And while it is an Hispanic serving institution, many of my students are white. Um, I show up often as the only um, person of color in spaces. And so having to just shift a bit in my understanding, the reality of that moment, um, it's easy to fall into imposter syndrome in, in those moments, but um, being able to walk into the, the you know, the, the teaching space, the active learning space, and kind of declare my culture, celebrate my culture, and share with them my experiences um, in a very different version of the industry than what they will experience post their matriculation. Um, that's, that's really been, uh, it's been therapeutic and it's been um, inspiring to see them respond with their own conversations and stories or revelations um, as it concerns cultural identity in an industry like this. I mean, the other thing is, and I think you said it, is that I, um, I'm i a classically trained musician. So my principal instrument is the piano, of course, and, and voice. Um, but to be able to, to bring all of the aspects of my experience from being a director, from you having to choreograph, it's always interesting people like, you choreographed that? It's like, yep. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and share that um, share the depth of those experiences. Also, share the depth of you know, in some of those experiences, there was a little bit of a little bit of trauma attached. You know, a very different way of learning than I think. You know, our current students would not necessarily. <laughs> I don't know if they would uh, understand the benefit of being cussed out um, in class and how how it kind of realigns your spine, makes you want to go home and do some work. Um, that, you know, and, and then I think uh, at the center of all of this is I always bring my my faith um, into it and my belief, you know, that um, that God has given everybody a, a specific set of tools that are meant to help bless the universe, the world, and the places that you go, where you go. And there are days where I don't want to be a teacher for so many reasons, as I'm sure you all both can understand, right? But then it, it, it's just in those moments uh, of, of gratefulness and something will happen that will remind me, you know, I have purpose here. Um, this is where I'm supposed to be in this moment. And let's just worry about right now in, in this moment. So um, my cultural identity, of course, you know, my diverse skill set as, a, as uh, you know, being a fortunate member of, of this industry and then my, my faith, um, not only in, uh, in terms of the, the, the bigger picture, you know, it's one thing for me, it might be something else for others, but that, that centering space that allows you to come in and, and just do your job. Marty, I'm glad that you mentioned your faith because in your in your bio, you you speak about how you 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 started as a musician in the church, and I'm curious how you made the transition from that into the world of musical theater, which obviously is related but different. Yeah, so you know, I it's it's just really 
Um, it could be a long story, but it's not. You know, I grew up, um, I was born in Macon, Georgia, and um, I was blessed to grow up around almost four generations of my family. And at every level, there was, um, at every corner um, of our family, generationally, um, and even now, um, music is a big part of, of who we are as a family. <clears throat> and so um, I started my, I mean, I can recall being, the earliest memory I have is being like five and pulling a chair up to the coffee table and playing along with Alvin and the Chipmunks because Alvin and the Chipmunks was basically like a musical every Saturday. So I was like, yo, this is dope. I want to play these songs. And so that turned into kind of <laughs> being able to go to the piano and pluck out sound, songs um, or as they say, playing by ear. And, you know, I'm six years old, I'm seven years old. And so my, you know, I recall going to, I tell everybody that my siblings and I were choir rehearsal babies because we spent a lot of time with our parents going to choir rehearsal and we would sit, they would, they would be in rehearsal. And as soon as rehearsal was over, um, Miss Daisy McDowell would let me come up on the piano and tinker and play. And, and my whole family just knew that it was going to be a part um, of my life. Um, and so um, I don't think there ever was a switch. There was never a there was never a moment that I was like, I'm going to do musical theater now. It's what I always, it was what I loved. I knew that I enjoyed it. I remember the first musical that I recall seeing was Mama, I Want to Sing. Um, but prior to that, I was like, I was in musicals all my life. They were called the Easter program, the Christmas pageant. Like these are all forms of synthesized art. And, and it's what a lot of my conversations and research is in, which is the impact of synthesized art in the faith space. And so, you know, I we my mom was our choir director. You know, I watched my dad sing the whole canon of the temptations and lead any and every, you know, my, my uncle was in a singing group you know, had a gospel a quartet. I have cousins that just, just stellar voices that are teaching at Columbia. And, you know, it was, it, it was just such a big part. And then um, one of the most renowned sopranos that you'll never know was my Aunt Alice Lamar, who could open her mouth and you would just swear that like an, an angel was flying out of her throat. Like, you know, so I grew up with all of that. So I've always, been. There was never a moment that I was like, this is new. I want to do it. I always knew that I wanted to do it. Um, in high school, though, I would really run away from it because I didn't want all the stigmas that are attached to it. You know, I'm, I'm soft or I'm a queen or, you know, all of the things that very negative and derogatory things that are attached that can be attached to men, particularly men of stature. You know, I'm I'm a big, I'm a lot of men when I walk into a space, right? <laughs> um, and so there was a time when I thought that, you know, music was not enough and that I needed to do what everybody thought I did, which was play football, right? So I wanted to play football. And my dad was very clear. I would never forget the conversation. I came home, I had done my research. I had talked to the coaches and they told me they were going to get me the padded gloves so I wouldn't hurt my hands. Everybody everybody knew that I played the piano. I would always be featured at, in the programs and all this stuff. Um, and then I had a really, you know, the conservatory that I went to, we had a very um, kind of taxing 
com competitive schedule. So we were in a lot of competitions all the time. Um, so I came home to tell my dad, like, yeah, dad, you know, I talked to the coach and he told me he could get me gloves. He was like, son, and I quote, son, that is not your ministry. <laughs> no. <laughs> right. He was like, do what you're doing. Stay right there. That's that's where your um, where your blessings will be. That's how you're going to touch and change the world. And that's how opportunities are going to continue to be made. And and he is absolutely right. This is these last five months. This is the first time in my entire life that I've gone five months without having some level of responsibility and leadership at someone's church. Um, previously, just you know, before my I uh, I resigned from my position at Metropolitan African Methodist Episcopal Church in Washington D.C. It's the oldest continuously owned black property, um, property owned by African Americans in the district, strategically built to be you know a mile away from the White House. My brother also happens to be the pastor of that of that esteemed church, um, and so that kind of collaboration between siblings, but between siblings that that have very specific gifts, um, right? That was such a, a wonderful experience. Um, and it never happened before where you have two brothers kind of working together, but it, but he had seen me grow, you know, he, he could trust me with a, a position that large because he had seen my work. He had seen me evolve. And, um, and so I don't, I don't ever feel like I made a transition into musical theater. I feel like there have been multiple times where I have tried to transition away from musical theater, um, <laughs> but I would always find myself back there. And then, you know, you go get your MFA. My MFA was focused on classical, um, classical acting, but they let me in my last year, they let me kind of design like my own musical theater track within my program. I mean, you know, Dr. Michael Pinkney, Dr. Ralph Rimshard, um, Doc Shelton, who just transitioned last week, and um, Tony Mata. These are all people that in grad school, where they could have told me, no, that's not why you're here, because they like to tell us that. They said, let's figure out what we can do to give you some more specialized training in those in those spaces. So, you know, I, I, I have never been out of the bubble of musical theater. I didn't want to be in it many times, but I've always, it's just always been a part of who I am. I love this. I love that um, this description of this, of your family, of the community, of the, the, the people that stand with you, the, the shoulders that we all stand on, I, that is just so touching to hear. Um, and I am also aware of the fact that my shoulders are, are, being stood upon or that they should be by the students that we're choosing. And so I'd love for you to speak about, um, and this, I, I, I don't even know what this question is, but I'm wondering what you think might be missing from like the curriculum today, like, or, or what, what areas um, could, especially in the, in academia, could we be making space for our, our students um, in a way that we maybe haven't done so recently? You know, that's a very interesting question, my friend. And I have been pondering that in many ways. It's very easy to say we need to make room for diversity. Okay, we know that that's a problem. We don't <laughs> we don't have to beat that horse. We're very clear. The bigger conversation is why is there no diversity? And to me, that's an easy question because y'all ain't make space for diversity. 
it's, it, it's, it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that we are in one of the most systemically racist industries that we can be in, that you can be involved in. And even if you have never caused the offense, we have all witnessed the offense of racism. We have all felt the hand, particularly in these last three years, that we felt the power that is systemic racism. And so the thing that has to be added is humanity. To me, that's what's missing. It's humanization. It is the ability for me as a, as a professor, it is the ability for me as an instructor to say, it is no longer enough. It's no longer enough for me to simply view the world um, through one perspective. That, that that is not okay. So it's not okay for us to say that there is a weight limit for dancers. That's not okay. It's not okay for our um, seasons to continue to have carousel. That's not okay. It's not okay for um, um, dream girls to be staged and there are no African-American women on the creative team. It's not okay. You know, and those are the things that we have to add. We have to add back honest human concern, right? Something else that I think we have to add now, and this is not a popular sentiment, I get it, but this idea of triple threat. Now, I know, <laughs> I know people run away from that, that thought, but in my opinion, there's nothing wrong with that idea. The problem is we have aligned this idea of triple threat with our definition of what it means to be a good singer, a good dancer, a good actor, right? Now for me, a triple threat means that at bare minimum, you can make yourself on a stage look like you're a good dancer, a good singer, <laughs> a good actor. In other words, as a triple threat, you may not have everything you need in the moment, but you know how to access the tools that you need mm -hmm. to do the job. And so we have got to get back to redefining what it means to be a triple threaded artist. What it really means is that you're diverse, that you can in one season, I'll use me as an example. In one season, I went from the little shop of horse to the amen corner, right? Amen corner is so, it's so different where I'm sitting at a piano, I'm supporting the cast, you know, that was my job to be on the stage, playing the piano, singing, and I had solos, that was that. Mm -hmm. Little Shop of Horrors, it's the same idea, except what? I'm in the corner of the theater with all the curtains closed with my own monitoring system because I am the voiceover of a plant. To me, that's what it means, right. that you can go in and out and we have to train students in that way. I think the other thing that's missing is the understanding of the necessity of acting technique, the foundational, we can call it, you know, it's old, as some people term it, the way that the old white men taught. Yes, 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 and yes, I understand that. But there is value in understanding Stanislavski. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's value in it. There's value in understanding Meisner. There's value in understanding the students that came out of that like there is there's value in that and i think what happens in, in many musical theater programs is we bring all these people in that had a pretty good audition and we let them keep matriculating through their pretty good audition instead of saying everything you did at the audition that is no longer your standard we have to get back to that having strict standards and a strict standard is is saying this 
I'm I am a I will just say I'm a plus size man, right? Let's just say that, right? <laughs> so I am never going to be like in the chorus of hairspray. Right? I get that. But that does not mean that I don't that I that that with the under the right eye, the right director's eye and vision. That doesn't mean that I can't be cast in Hairspray, right? I can be cast, but I can't be cast if I can't do the dances, if I can't do the work, if I can't maintain the stamina. And that is not body shaming. That is me telling you the reality of this particular show mm -hmm. <laughs> is that you don't get a chance to breathe. I mean, I played seaweed in my current stature. I played seaweed. And 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 the the comment I would get most evenings was like, oh my gosh, you're so light on your feet. Now that's a little I that's a little disrespect. I get it, right? <laughs> but what they were saying was that my stature and my ability to move on the stage, they were not aligned. They would not expect a man of my size to be able to, to you know, to run and tell that. But he can and he did. It's because it's the job. Right. And so I had to re-strategize my triple threadedness so that I could show up for the job that's at hand. Right now, I think our entire educational system, as it concerns performance disciplines, we have to be overhauled with good teachers that want to work harder. If you get a room full of people that have been studying ballet for 13 years, you put them on a bar, you don't have to work too hard. <laughs> you know, but what about those who's whose definition of dance training was at their church. Yeah. What about those whose voice lessons only happened on Wednesday night and Saturday when they were at worship team rehearsal? Mm -hmm. That's what I'm talking about. We have to make space for those triple threats as well. Marty, um, I've, I've heard you talk a lot about um, how we need to acknowledge that musical theater was, was built and stemmed from a very, the most one of the most racist one of the most racist parts of American history and the minstrel shows and 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 how we have been inherently racist and the system has been built in a, in a racist way and how we need to uh, make space and uh, dismantle that system and I'm curious if if you could speak to our to our listeners about ways that they can they can advocate for that in their own institutions or at their studios, make that space. Yeah, I think, you know, we, we live in a, in a season where um, we're also afraid of being canceled, that we just don't make any decisions. And that has to stop. You know, we, 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 we know more than the students we teach. We know more. We are the expert for that hour and 30 minutes or whatever. And as soon as we begin to relinquish that understanding, then they get to take control and our programs do suffer, right? Our programs suffer. So what can we do? What can we do um, day in and day out as we're trying to reassign um, the beauty of our industry back to the industry? Well, the first thing that I think we can do is pull back Take the reins back as it concerns being an, being an instructor, being an educator. That you consider and regard what the student needs, but that ultimately you have to make the best decisions for not only that student, 
but for that program. It means that you have to trust that you know what's best. That does not mean that you're not going to make mistakes because you are, but it does mean that I am actively behaving as one that has been given the responsibility of vision. As we regard vision, we have to have a different kind of vision for our seasons. It is no longer okay to not sit down and beat your brain and your head on the table because you got to figure out how to serve your white students, your black students, your Latino students, your Hispanic students, your indigenous students, your Asian identifying students, that we have to sit down and do that work. It is not enough to say, well, we can get away with it because no, if we have to get away with it, we shouldn't be producing it. It's just, and sometimes that means you have to do this. It means you don't get to put on five shows. You can only put on two because you have to spend a budget to bring in that cultural center into your university. Mm -hmm. If I'm doing Gym of the Ocean, then it would only make sense for me to bring in artists because we don't have them on the faculty, but bring in artists that can help tell that story that can help tell that story. That's how we do it. The other way is, man, we just have to have conversations. You have to be able to pick up the phone and say, this is what's going on at my school. This is what I said in class, and this is how they responded. Help me understand why that's a problem. That our conversations are not just limited to race. Now they are also um, focused on how students identify. There's so many things to think about. Like, it's so many things to think about, right? And you're bound to make a mistake, but it's how you engage in, in the resolution that really makes the difference, right? So going back to what I was saying, reaching out, having a, um, a collegial conversation, Right, you're my colleague. Having colleagues that you know you can have really tough conversations with, that you can you can really go into the paint, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and they're going to support you. They're going to hold you up. That has to change. For many of us, we don't even have a regular faculty meeting. We just, it's it's just hard to do between the teaching and the production and the this and the that. But that is how we keep our programs moving forward, and that's also how we don't get canceled. <laughs> that we're having open conversations about um challenging aspects of the work that we that, that that we have to do and then i think the other thing is we have to realize that it does not matter how much effort and work we put into shifting our programs if the university does not make the shifts as well then they are not long-lasting the shifts will not sustain and we will find ourselves right back in the spaces that we were in only two three years ago yeah, it's 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 it is the biggest pandemic. It's systemic racism in education, and until we really take a step back and have honest conversation about it and put um, strategy in place, then we we won't get. It, it will continue to be that dark cloud over the work um, that we're trying to do. So, Marty, I'm curious um, how. So it's, it's one thing, you know, working with students, teaching students, mentoring students, guiding students. Um, one of the things that we do in the theater that isn't necessarily true for the, the history professor or the, you know, the English professor is, is we are, 
we are in it with our colleagues all the time. We we collaborate on productions. We, you know, I'm teaching one part of musical theater while my other, my colleague is teaching another part. We're all in this thing together. It's what I love about musical theater um, and theater. How would you deal with a colleague who wasn't on board for what you're talking about? Because I know that some of our listeners might be experiencing something like that. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, it's it's very interesting, uh, your question, because I think oftentimes... Everybody just walks around like they don't know who that person is in their department. Like we all know who those people are, right? And I was raised, I'm very proud of my Southern roots, the traditions that are so, um, um, that define what it means to be a Southern gentleman. Um, And one of those is you get more with honey than you do with vinegar. Mm. So what does that mean? It means that I have to go to even that person and be willing to say, hey, what you doing? Let's go get a grab a cup of coffee and let's talk. The one thing that I know to be true about people like that is that often somewhere in their matriculation, they were on the other side as well. That there was a time where they came into a faculty meeting, they came in, they were new fresh-eared, fresh-eyed, right? And they had a great strategy to solve something and everybody said no. Mm -hmm. That creates a continual pattern of trauma that then turns into negativity, disdain, and mistrust. And that's been my experience. That oftentimes, it's not that they don't want to do what you want them to do. It's that they've tried to do similar work and have been shot down moment after moment, time after time. And now you're asking them to align with people who they, in their opinion, have not treated them well. Right. And so you have to be able to to have tough conversations with tough people. At the moment where you try to do that and they still go against it, then that's when strategy turns into what's on the paper. What are the pro rules? Mm-hmm. What are the what are the procedures? And you follow the rules and the procedures. That means if it's a vote, I don't need to have a conversation with him anymore. I vote against him. And that's just what it is. You know, it all starts from the understanding of community, in my opinion. And what's happening now across our campuses is you're bringing in all these we'll just say fresh minds, typically they're much younger. In some spaces you bring them in and you put them in charge of a program where the majority of that faculty has been teaching there for 35 years. <laughs> Those faculty members built the very program that you're leading. They're all trying to figure out, well, why were none of us asked to be in charge of the program? There's already disdain and dysfunction. And so what you have to do is you got to do like old school student government association stuff. Like I remember being SJ president and we would do game, we would play games like trust where you stand on the block and you fall and you trust that everybody's going to catch you. You'd be surprised that in the moment where you feel like you're about to die, all of a sudden everybody's your friend because they have to catch you, (laughs) right? And to me, that's what many of our faculties need. Good old fashioned retreats that are built and centered on, that are centered on building community. So we can have the tough conversations, 
you know, we had an incident um, at Cal State Fullerton that there was this particular play that was being read and one, and, uh, one of the, the students, uh, African-American student, wouldn't really share, um, didn't really have the words um, to say how it made them feel. But when they came and talked to me, they could tell me exactly how it made them feel, right? And so my responsibility is to go to my colleague and not say, I can't believe you did that, no. Is to say, hey, can we talk for a minute? Um, I had a conversation with student, and student said, "This was this is what was happening in class, and this was their response." You know, help me, help me understand. How can I help? How can I be of assistance? Oftentimes, they don't even realize that they have created that experience. I'll never forget being called into the principal's office at Howard University, and I made a comment, and I think I said something like. Um, we're going to keep doing this until you stop sweating because you cannot be on stage sweating through the musical. It means our stamina, our fitness, we got to raise our fitness, our fitness. Well, that was interpreted by a student as body shaming. It is not my job to defend myself. It is my job to listen, go to my supervisor, my superior and say, that was not my intention, but this is what I heard that student say, and I will apologize. I will apologize. Again, it was about what was needed to do the job. It was not about what size you needed to be. But if that's how it was interpreted, then I don't, I don't need to do anything other than simply say, I apologize, and this was my intention. And that's what has to happen across campuses. I don't think the problem is with the students at all. It really is with the faculty members. We don't like each other. It's just what it is. Many of us cannot stand each other. We don't want to be there. Some of us are ready to go on tenure <laughs> or, or verp. You know, you got half of the people ready to do that. The other half brand new, fresh. You know, they want to do everything at the same time. And you have people like me that's like, I would just like to sit and watch and see what's happening. And then let's strategize, right? Let's just do our jobs. Let's strategize, you know. Uh, and so you have all these different energies that are trying to create art of all things, man. I'm like, are we trying to be like, like is musical theater, shouldn't it be fun at some point, right? But all of that stuff gets in the way. It gets in the way. And so um, I drifted a little bit from your original question, but, it, but it's the same idea that, I need to be able to go to Marty and say, this is what I said. Help me understand why that's a problem, please. It might also mean that I say, would you come sit in my office and, and while I talk to this student, that we're supporting each other in those very challenging moments. It's, it's, bound, it's just bound to happen. This is so great. I mean, I feel like this is the conversation that I that we have, but right, we don't have together. It's that... It's that getting in the same room, which has been made worse to some degree by the pandemic, right? But, you know, so it's, it's that level or um, effort towards making community always gets a little difficult, I will say. Um, I'm wondering if um, you could share what is inspiring you right now. I mean, like, what are you listening to? What are you watching on Netflix? Um, what, what is the inspiration of your life? <laughs> the inspiration of my life. Honestly, right now, I am making a commitment to happiness. I don't think I've ever really done that. Um, and so uh, once you make a commitment like that, it kind of screws your life up. 
<laughs> because then you have to apply happiness in all situations. You have to find the silver lining in all situations. Um, and so um, I'm, I'm inspired by the fact that um, these are little things, but they're big things. I had COVID over the Christmas holiday and I was inspired that I didn't feel bad. Mm -hmm. It inspired me because I know too many of my friends and families, friends of fam uh, family friends that have lost so many people as a result of that, right? And so I'm grateful to just like be here, like to be in conversation with you all because it didn't have to be, it could have been another way for sure. Uh, I'm also inspired by my own continued um, pursuit of my own dreams. Um, and I wrote this down the other day, Dream Chaser. Um, it'll be the title of my album, my book. Like, I, th I just think, I, I, th I think what happens, uh, I'm 43. And I tell people that what happens when you start approaching 40 is you think life is over. But that's like, that's when you really kind of know. Mm -hmm what you're gonna do mm -hmm. is when you really stop giving up mm -hmm, and you just begin to live your life. And so that is what has happened for me when I turned 40, I got myself the greatest gift, um, a therapist, and it was inspiring. <laughs> it was inspiring. And she made me go into depths and corners of my life that I would not have gone through. And the only thing that made that more inspirational was that when I shared it with my family, members of my family, then considered self-care in some way, a vacation, a walk every day, a therapist, your favorite song. So all of those things are very, very inspiring to me. Now, when it comes to music, um, I could listen to, uh, and I'm gonna say the name wrong, Leanne Le Havis. Mm -hmm. um, I could listen to her music all day. It, it is just, um, it chokes me up. It, it, it chokes me up. She has a song called Good Goodbye. Um, and then she has a song called Green and Gold. And I can play them at any moment. And one takes me down all the way to a low, but it's a, it's a beautiful place to be sometimes. And then one takes me all the way up to a beautiful high. That's inspiring. And then I have a stack of books that I have been promising myself that I'm going to get to reading <laughs> um, and um, or rereading. I feel like we all have those books. I just I just need the time to do it. I need the time to do it. Um, and, and I do want to make a distinction, right? Because I loved I love hearing all of these recommendations from you. We would actually also love, we did ask you before this if you have a specific recommendation for our audience that you'd like to share. So this would be a good time to do that as well. And um, but I'm just now imagining myself on a beach reading a book as as a something that I'd like to be doing soon. Um um, when I got to Cal State Fullerton, Dr. Beta, she's a just beautiful, beautiful, queenly sister. And she talked about decolonizing writing and it freed my life. She talked about um, the way in which we're taught to write and read, that we're taught them in very stoic ways. And as we mature, as we get older, those spaces, they don't give us the freedom to have the brain energy, the creative energy to, to really kind of focus in. And so 
she started sharing. She shared about this course that she went through where they talked about things like playing your favorite song before you're about to write a read, lighting candles before you're about to write a read, reading in the sunlight or, or reading late at night um, prior to going to sleep because you're, you're, you're in, in a space of relaxation. Even if you fall asleep, you still allowed your body to consume what it is that you're doing. Um, and so that, that really kind of helped me um, as I am trying to navigate through um, through my books and things. Um, and then things like this are extremely inspirational, you know, podcasts that are, or, or media in any way that is focused on musical theater. People trivialize what we do. They have no idea. So I'm musically directing the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And last night we spent three hours then from six to 10, our rehearsal started at seven, but we spent all three hours just learning the opening <laughs> song. There are six parts to the Bells of Notre Dame. We spent three hours. These are young artists in training that are so hungry and so excited about doing the work. And when their families come to see them, what took us we'll probably spend another 10 hours tightening it up. What took us 15 hours to make amazing, they get to experience it in eight minutes. Mm -hmm. And people never think about that. That inspires me. I was inspired last night with a, with a, with a screwed up back. I was inspired to see them um, just hungry. And that always does it for me. A bunch of young folks that's like, yep, I want to be a musical theater star. I love it. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, you inspire me, Marty. I just think you're the absolute best. And I so appreciate you carving out time in your busy schedule in your first year of a new position to sit and talk with, with Kikau and I. Um, Kikau, was, were there any, anything else that you wanted to touch on? No, I just, um, I love it. I love everything that you're sharing. Oh yeah. If you had a specific one, that would be great. Yes, I have three. They're really quick. The first Great. one is called The Great White Way, Race and the Broadway Musical. Um, there's a picture of, of, of Pearl Bailey on it uh, in, in that all African-American cast production of Hello, Dolly. Um, that one, The Great White Way. And then Black Broadway, African-Americans on The Great White Way. And, and, and I'm being very specific with these tools because I know for many of us, it's like, how do we begin to approach the conversation of racism? Don't approach it. Just get the book. Get the book. <laughs> and read the book, share the book, reference the book. Your students will do the same. And then uh, my third is Respect for Acting by Uta Hagen. She is a strong, queenly, listen, I, I think she's my auntie. Um, but talk about, <laughs> talk about a process that is musical theater specific, in my opinion. Um, and then I found this other piece, um, and I just found this through Googling, that there is a collection of very deeply researched material on the connection between Stanislavskian techniques being applied to performance disciplines, everything from the piano to musical theater. Thank you. That's great. Thank you. Uh, Marty, again, thank you so much. Um, and I, I think, I think this was a really good episode, Kikau. We're, 
A plus. This was yeah, an awesome. A plus episode. for all of us. We all, we get, all get an A plus. plus. You, you know it's you know it's good when you know every week I feel like that we're, we're recording. I'm learning something, but but today I felt particularly entranced. I ran out of space on my my little note taking device. I was just the last the respect for acting. I just got barely in the corner. But thanks, Marty. Thank you all. Music for Carefully Taught was provided by Joshua Haig. For more information, visit joshuahaigmusic.com. Music.